you're very welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast as Ireland go in search of their first Six Nations win this campaign. It's Italy this weekend and Andy Farrell has chosen, opted I should say, not to bring in any new faces to the squad. Delighted to be joined by Donald Lennon, by Bernard Jackman and mm-hmm. Wes Liddy. Uh, Donald, uh, is it a surprise that Andy Farrell hasn't freshened up the squad? Um, uh, can you understand his rationale for keeping with the tried and trusted and, and he's made no bones about the fact that he's absolutely going all out for a win this weekend? Yeah, look, I think it's uh, just to be anticipated, really. Look, I mean, it is all very well for us to sit back here and pontificate and uh, bringing in young 21-year-olds and taking chances. Um, but this is a game that, that's fraught with danger. Everybody's expecting uh, a five-point uh, five bonus uh, win. Um, so, and, and, you know, as we've seen, Italy actually, despite the fact they've leaked over 90 points, they haven't been that bad. So, um, it's a game I think that uh, Andy Farrell will be uh, a little bit nervous about. But, you know, am I surprised that uh, he hasn't expanded the squad? I'm not really. I think he flagged that from an early point. And um, so, uh, you know, I think even though the team won't be announced until tomorrow, I think we'd all have a fair stab at what it is. Yeah, he's setting out a stall, Bernard. I mean, you know, he's he's made... He hasn't been showing about the fact that he actually has to go and win this game now. Donald mentioned nerves there. If he's nervous, the players are bound to feel a little bit of nerves and pressure because they haven't won a game so far. Yeah, but they'll look at they'll realise that you know um, Italy's a game that they're they're well capable of winning, and um, it's probably the ideal game coming up for them to be honest. Even though I, I agree with Donald, they have improved a little bit. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to get some confidence and some belief going into what looks like two hard games against against Scotland away and England, England at home. I think um, Farrell would have probably lost credibility with this squad by not rewarding the fellas who didn't make the squad for for the for the Wales game and, and French game. You know, realistically, the likes of Chris Farrell, Bundy Aki, who haven't been involved, um, they should be the next cab on the, on the rank. But I, I do agree with you, with with a question around someone like Gavin Coombs or with Peter Manny being unavailable. Um, is this an opportunity to look at someone like him? Um, still the Cooney, Jack Carty um, chat, you know, it must be very difficult for them to be behind guys who aren't first choice for, for their provinces. And, and first, Cooney, he's, he's getting the head down. He's playing he's playing pretty well. So they're the ones probably um, who, who are probably a little bit frustrated. But I can understand Farrell seems to be now, although the, some of the, the stuff in the media this week kind of shifting the blame back on the players is, is a little bit interesting. But... Um, the most important thing for him is he keeps this squad together and playing for them. And let's be honest, they are playing for him. You know, we the things we're critical of has been probably some of the selection um, and the tactics. But in terms of efforts, um, the players are given absolutely everything for him. So uh, I think he, he's he's going to be great conscious of, of keeping the group together and obviously getting a, getting a win. Ironically, you know, at the start of the Six Nations, we spoke around the importance of the prize money. Um, and I had another look at it. Uh, you know, the big the big winner is winning the Grand Slam, six million. Um, uh, and coming second is three point five million, and then third is two point five million. But once you go from third down to sixth, it's incrementally decreasing in half a million. So it's really very little impact to the RFU now um, in terms of where we finish. Like half a million in the current state of affairs, when we're losing five million a month, is is irrelevant. So in some ways, there is an opportunity potentially to. To maybe experiment a little bit more, um, but uh, I suppose Farrell is feeling the pressure, um, and yeah, we can see that in in a, in, a, in, a, in what would be a safe selection with maybe a couple of guys on the bench 
you know, the Ryan Bears, the Craig Casey's um, potentially to, to come on. And in fairness to Farrell, he has given a lot of players opportunities. It just hasn't turned into viable options for, uh, for Six Nations games. Yeah, and Wes, you can probably guess I'm a little bit disappointed that we, we don't have a couple of fresh faces in there. What's your view on the squad selection? Not surprised, I suppose. That's not to say I'd agree that it's not right to take a bit of a risk, but not surprised he's played it a little bit safe. Um, I suppose there is there is the thought that if you don't get something at this weekend, both in terms of result and, and performance, that you know, you're really making a rod for your own back with the last two games that are coming. So it, it is a chance, as Bernard says, to kind of build a bit of momentum and, and kind of get back on track, so to speak. But yeah, it's a little disappointing maybe not to see one or two more faces and like you'd hope to be kind of taking something tangible out of this game aside from the points now, whether that's in terms of personnel or, or in terms of a bit more bit more clarity around how they're playing. But I mean, you know, easily have conceded 90 points in two games, Donald said, so you would expect them to win, you would expect them to win well. Um, and I suppose they've been kind of close on a lot of occasions, even last season, to to showing us a kind of shoots of, of where they might go. And that's what's kind of frustrating about the minute. And it's hard not to see that pattern kind of repeating itself this weekend because, you know, they, 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 they will probably win well and we will probably tell ourselves that, that things are on the right course. But really, it's it's probably not even that good a barometer for how well things are moving. Yeah, and that's I, I guess that's it, Donald. It's, it's kind of a, a catch-22 for Andy Farrell because he's expected to win this game. Everybody expects him to win this game. And if he does comfortably, I don't know, does the pressure ease off at all because of the fact that it's Italy? No, it doesn't ease off. I mean, the bottom line is, is Wes just said, look, it, it, what kind of a barometer is it? I mean, I've looked at the Italian squad of the, I think they've had 24 players involved in their uh, the two matches to date against uh, England and France. Um, by and large, their, their, their 23-man squad is made up of 11 from Benetton, 12 from Zebra. Uh, they have two guys who play for Calvisano in what they call the Peroni Top 10. Now, that's the league underneath the two divisional sides. I mean, that's probably the equivalent of All-Ireland League. Um, and they've only got one overseas player in, in Varney, the scrum half, who's third choice scrum half for Gloucester. He's 19 years of age. Okay? So, they started against... Uh, they started against France, sorry, against England. They had eight players started from Benetton and nine, uh, sorry, nine against France, eight against England. Benetton have played 11 in the Pro 14 and lost all 11. Zebra have played 12 and lost nine. So you're looking at three wins out of 23 collective matches between the two teams. Um, so you just wonder what, what's the mindset of those Italian players? Um, you know, they just don't win matches at any level. And then mm. they go up to international level and they get hammered. You know, I, 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 every Monday morning, you're the coach, like, oh, where do you go? How do you pick it up? And, and we're here then sort of talking about them being the barometer for improvements. Um, like, regardless of what team Munster, Leinster, Ulster put out against Benetton or Zebra these days, you expect them to win. So therefore, like from that point of view, even if we do go away and we hammer Italy by 30, 40 points, 
uh, you know, it's not going to tell us a whole lot. The only thing, I suppose, from an attacking perspective, given that we've the lowest number of tries, we've only scored two tries in the championship to date, which is the lowest return from any side. It may give you a glimpse of, you know, things that they're talking about they work in, in training, but haven't come to fruition on the field. But, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with Birch in terms of when you hear sort of my cat coming along, well, you know, we've given them the blueprint, the players, they're not changing, you know, they're not adapting on the field. Mm, you, you just start to wonder a small bit, you know? Yeah, it was interesting listening to my cat this week, Bernard. Uh, he seems pretty sure that they're on the right track, but it's difficult for people outside of the squad environment to see what that track is. Um, I, I thought he, he he obviously looked a little bit defensive, maybe so, because his name has been kind of bandied around as, as a problem because he is the attack coach. What do you make of, of what he had to say this week? Look, I, I think uh, um, as a coach, and I, I've been in a situation similar to the Benetton and Zebra in, in Dragons where, you know, players historically have lost and um, you're trying to find positives from, um, from situations where there's not a lot of positives to take, but you have to do that as a as a coach, you have to give them a reason to pick themselves up on a Monday and go again. And it must be, I, I feel sorry for the Italian players and coaches because, you know, the the, the benefit of winning um, every so often um, is is massive in terms of uh, feedback and, re- and relief and self-worth, etc. So it's a, it's a difficult situation to, to change that. And um, I think what Mike Cat is trying to do is, and I, I listened to his quotes and um, his interviews, and he, and he said, you know, we created a lot of chances against France. Well, I look back at it, we actually didn't. You know, the, the only real chance we had was the James Lowe um, opportunity. And uh, But again, I can understand why he's trying to, you know, subliminally get messages to the players and say, look, we are creating chances, and <clears throat> it's just execution. Um, but again, I would say also, if there's not a transfer from the, the blueprint to the to the pitch, they need to look at why and um, need to work with the players. And, and you know, they say clarity gives confidence. And at the moment, it doesn't seem like we're getting a huge amount of confidence from, from the training environment to be able to go and execute um, in, in the game. And that's something that the coaches and players together have to take responsibility. And in fairness to the players, you know, they haven't come out and said, oh, you know, we're not, we don't understand the plan. They, they've kept quiet about it. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see the reaction this week. I thought the last two weeks from a media point of view were really interesting. Um, you know, the RFU got got Peter Smith out talking about how great the player development pathway is. They got Gary Keegan talking about, you know, the work they're doing now with the mental side of it. And then obviously Farrell and Kat came out and, and, and spoke a bit around where we're at. And then obviously the Johnny Sexton um, chat as well around around his um, his future. So it's, there's lots of lots of talk about um, over the two weeks. I thought it's, I thought it started off. I thought it was all well planned media. Um, strategy by the by the squad with, with the Keegan stuff and the player development stuff and then I just thought you know the cat and, and Farrell stuff kind of putting it back on the players was, was interesting so um, look we'll see over the next next three or four weeks um, how it's all going to play out Yeah it was interesting Wes that my cat seemed to infer that look we're putting all the structures in place for the players to, to score more tries it's just that they're not doing it and they're not making the right decisions at the right time which I thought was interesting, and I wonder how the players feel about that. It was borderline. Um, it was borderline quite salacious and, and headline making. I think um, in terms of 
one putting it back on the players, um, which there is a bit of form there um, from past jobs as well, um, and two, quite arrogant in, in some ways to kind of infer like you know we've given this this blueprint. I mean, you know, the the, the blueprint isn't in question at all. It's 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 the execution. So. Like I don't think that's what he was saying, but it it wasn't far off being inferred that way. So it was a it was a curious one, and frankly, I don't think he has the trust or the relationship with the uh, with the Irish support base to to come out and make comments like that. Yeah, well, we went through some of the stats, you know, after the French game in terms of the offloads that Ireland have not been throwing uh, versus what other sides are doing. So, like. <laughs> I guess he can't be too specific, Wes, about it because, you know... It's, it's what, like, both the lads have said there, and I, I was saying it last week, probably, as usually, explain myself poorly when trying to say it, but um, it's clarity is the word that keeps coming up. Um, and, you know, th- there's no clarity in terms of what they're doing and with their attack on the pitch, it seems, to me anyway. I think the lads agree. Um and it seems even off the pitch when, when, when Bernard ran through the kind of media strategy over the last fortnight, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of clarity there. So, I mean, look, we made that comparison with, with how things are going in France at the minute, which might be valid, it might not. But I, I just think there's a there's a lack of clarity and focus right across the, the wider environment at the minute. Um, Stuart, Bar- yeah, Stuart Burns though, had a, a piece in the Sunday Times just gone and he said just to quote a couple of paragraphs which I thought was interesting more than the loss it's the lack of added dynamism in the Irish game the fear of bloody youth at the expense of legends that concerns in their days as England coaches Farrell and Mike Cat were not renowned for fresh invigorating thinking rather they found their path and hammered away at it until it became increasingly aimless and blunt that's a pretty damning assessment isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Uh, I did actually read that piece and, and the same thing struck me. Um, like, you're, well, certainly Andy Farrell, look, he's a really impressive guy, but he's, you know, he, <clears throat> you keep going back. His background primarily is rugby league and he's a, he's a big, strong Northern Englishman. You know what I mean? Can be stubborn in many ways. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think like Stuart Barnes would know Mike Cat well. They would have played together in, in, in Bass a number of years ago. Uh, obviously, he'd be close to the scene in in England when when Cat was part of the England setup. But um, you know, I suppose the other thing that struck me uh, in in some of the comments that came out in the press conference during the week was you know simple things like, well, we had prepared to play in wind and rain, and uh, you know we, we all of a sudden then we ran out onto the pitch, and the conditions were perfect. Well, I drove up from Cork on the Sunday morning, and I. Had, brought two coats on the basis that the weather forecast told me that it was going to stop raining at half past two and the sun was going to come out. Um, Do you know what I mean? You you have to be able to adapt to things as they unfold in front of you. Um, And the forecast was that things would would clear up in the afternoon. But I mean, I don't accept that players of that level and that quality, um, you know, you prepare to, to kick in a certain way because the wind and the rain is going to present difficulties in doing other ways. But, you know, these guys are together so much and they prepare meticulously in so many ways for different types of conditions. Um, like, I, I, I don't accept that you can't adjust your game plan on the hoof um, and just say, well, look, and so that automatically would suggest that you're not open and you're not adept to thing to reacting. I mean, both Farrell and Kat have spoken about playing more heads-up rugby, being less prescriptive than we were under Joe Schmidt. Uh, but that 
by its very nature, suggests that you have to be able to adapt on the pitch and react to where the space is and where you're going to attack. Are the back three, are they covering the backfield? Is there space on the outside? Are the, are the wingers standing up so there's space? So you have to react to what happens in front of you. So I thought that was a strange comment as well in terms of, you know, we prepared to pay a certain way and we couldn't really adapt as we went on. Um, it's, it's just a bit strange, really. It is. Uh, like, and Bernard, I don't want to get too hung up on offloads specifically, but like there is a, a general school of thought here. And like, you know, what your coach has had on, you might be able to just elaborate on it, that because defences are so solid and so difficult to break down in the game of rugby union now, that offloading the ball is one of the key mechanisms by which you actually unlock a defence. And the fact that Ireland are either unwilling to do it or being told not to do it I don't accept that they can't do it but certainly they're not doing it it's just a bit of a head scratcher to me because I just don't understand what it is about their attack that my cat is so confident about well yeah and that's probably the, the most surprising thing is because in fairness when Mike came into the job that's what he said he was going to bring um, we were going to play a higher tempo um, more width more offloading because we weren't big and powerful enough to to play the, the type of game that England South Africa play. So that's why probably I'm more worried than, than um, maybe some people are. It's just that it's not as if, if he had to come in and said, look, we're going to play a high collision game, a lot of kicking. We're going to grind teams down. Well, then we're actually practicing that on a, on a, on a match to match basis. So there's a chance we get better at it. But the, the problem is we, we, we said, and probably last year we expected it to evolve and we're very patient around seeing it evolve and I think we've actually got tighter I think we've got closer to the way we play under Joe than further away from it and 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 again if they've made a strategic decision to change uh, well then you know they are implementing the plan but um I haven't heard anything to say no we're not going away from that like Eddie Jones as an example or Warren Gatlin they make no bones about how they want to play they have their yeah. plan they find the players to play that game and they go out and do it. And whether it's entertaining or not, they're result-focused. Whereas we said, this is how we're going to play. Um, and yet the evidence of what we see um, doesn't show that the players are buying into that, etc. And in fairness, like there has been opportunities to get the ball to width. And, and when you get go forward in the wide channels, it opens up offloads, etc. Um, we haven't really nailed that. And there's been probably problems around lines of running and, uh, maybe maybe not trusting the pass, etc. And then obviously the other way to do it, and we saw it from from France, um, is the is to have really good strike plays off set piece, get behind them, get, and then obviously it opens up the offload. So the the French first try came from you know a decent carry in midfield, um, and that allows Shadi Bear get get his hands free. I mean that's 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 another way to do it. So we haven't really shown. Um, kind of creativity in either, and 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 it is it is harder to implement your you know an attacking philosophy and change. But like I don't think the provinces are uh, like Dan McFarland's philosophy is to play high tempo. It's it's come from you know Glasgow and Scotland. Fairness, Andy Friend, he wants to play Leinster play. What are Munster doing over the last year? They're evolving their attack. So it's not like you've got four teams who play kick chase, and you're trying to you know upskill them like they, these lads actually have decent skill sets so i think it's it, it's it's not you know i don't think it's credible to say the players don't have the skill set to to do it I, I think they do um but they probably just need um confidence and confidence comes from how you train how you're prepared for opposition like 
against Wales, against France, we know they're going to blitz. We know they're going to blitz. If you, you know, because it's Sean Edwards, and yeah, you have to be prepared to try and find a way over that blitz or around it. Um, but yeah, we didn't really seem to have anything drastically different than we had against against Wales. Who okay under getting Jenkins are um, are, are trying to get back to that Sean Edwards system, but it's not nailed in um, as much. So that's the that's the challenge. I don't know what your definition was is of heads, like heads up rugby to me literally implies you're going to offload the ball. If you're playing heads up rugby and playing what's in front of you and, and basically attacking as to the situation that you see in front of you on the pitch, that implies me that you have to be able to pass the ball out of contact to guys around you. So Yeah, but I mean, like rugby above all sports does have a tendency to kind of go down a bit of a rabbit hole in terms of over analysis as well I mean I wouldn't get too hung up on the offloading thing in the sense of it's not the only way to attack it's not uh, the only way but it it, it, it implies Um, a creativity and like a natural uh, desire to create passes I don't think even I don't think even good attacking Irish teams in the past like say under Eddie um, played an offloading game similar to what you would expect to see from a good French side or a Fijian side, for example. I think they attacked in different ways. So I, I'm not too too hung up on, on the offloading thing in one way. I'd love to see it, obviously, don't get me wrong. But, like, it's just kind of strange that, like, as Birch said, Eddie Jones, Warren Gatlin don't really apologise for the way they're playing, which, again, goes back to clarity, a clear plan, a confidence in the plan. And, like... You know, if you're, like, say if you go back to the box kick, like, it almost kind of makes me wonder, I'd love to know what the two lads think of it, but if, you, if, you're, if you're kicking contestable as well, and that's a cornerstone of your strategy, and you might win 65% of possession, you might regain. Like, that's still incredibly high risk in that you're giving away 35% of possession willingly. And somehow we've come to this place where that's deemed low risk. Like, literally, there's nothing more high risk than giving possession away. But that's deemed low risk as opposed to holding on to the ball. Now, you can say there's all sorts of reasons for that. It's exhausting to go through phases like that or we don't have the physique to win those collisions. But it's also a bit of an indictment of uh, the skill set of the players and a bit of an indictment of the Irish system um, if they haven't been brought up to play that way. But... I don't actually believe that that's the case. I, I think all these players are good enough to play heads up rugby, whatever that means. And all of them, they wouldn't have got to this level if they didn't have a certain level of skill. It's, it's. I, I just don't believe it that they're not capable of playing a better brand of attacking rugby than we're seeing and have seen over the last number of years. Well, it's just not true. Do you think well, who, who, who's there more clarity about how they attack? And I accept it's a day-to-day coaching environment versus an international camp. But is there any suggestion that there's a coherence about what Ireland are doing compared to what Leinster do? No. So, so, like, Pat Lamb came into Connacht, I know it's five, six years ago, but you're telling me the players in Connacht were any more skillful than what's available to Ireland? He had them playing, one, an attractive brand, but more importantly, a winning brand in six months. Yeah. And what, what did he do? He empowered them, he gave them confidence, so surely the two aren't unrelated. Well, and you can see, like Donald, you can see Andy Friend, what he is doing with Connacht. And by the way, heads up rugby, like I don't want to get like lost in this term here, but heads up rugby to me is adapting to what's in front of you based on situations that arise on the pitch. 
and it's not it, it, it's not sticking rigidly to a script regardless of what the opposition is doing though that's heads up yeah, what we no, no, I, yeah I, I think you're right i mean it, but it's not necessarily offloading no either. no as you say i mean so i'm glad you tweaked your earlier definition of what um, of what heads up rugby was but no you're right listen i mean the, the bottom line is um as as Wes said, Pat Lamb came in. He devised a certain way that he wanted Connacht to play because he didn't think they were big enough up front. So therefore, they had to be more mobile, uh, play the ball out of the tackle, um, and 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 he was hugely successful with it. <clears throat> and again, I agree. Like it isn't as if our players don't have the skill set to do that. We've seen in the past that they have. What happens at international level is a coach decides. He looks at the players he has and he decides to play in a certain way. You mentioned um, uh, Warren Gatland. Warren Gatland never, uh, like the, the Warren ball thing used to drive him bananas, but everybody knows Wales played in a certain type of way. They attacked, uh, they attacked the game line. They had big physical carriers. They kept on going the same way. There was simplicity to what they did, but there was clarity there that Wales talked about. Everybody knew what they were good at. He had the players convinced that they were fitter, stronger, and faster than everybody else. So therefore, they could outlast the opposition, and that's how they won games. He almost brainwashed uh, a generation of Welsh players who achieved nothing at provincial level, but achieved so much more at international level. Why? By having a very rigid game plan, by having clear definitions about what he wanted each and every player to do, and by being absolutely spot on in terms of their execution. You go back to Joe Schmidt. Like, even when Ireland were winning, there was a lot of criticism in Ireland about the way that Ireland were playing because it wasn't overly attractive. It yeah. was based on retaining possession, about getting into the opposition 22, about stressing their defences where they gave away a penalty, which you had an opportunity to kick points or kick to the corner, and your line-out mall was so good, you won. It wasn't, and I remember arguing at the time, people were giving out about the style of Ireland's play, and I was saying, Jesus, what do you want here? For years, we couldn't win anything. Now we're being successful and we play in a way that suits us and it suits the brand of players that we have. Uh, but people still weren't satisfied. I think the issue here is with the current crop, we're not sure what the game plan is. We're not 100% sure what it is they're trying to achieve. So in other words, they haven't developed a recognised style like Gatland had, like Schmidt had, that you could see was getting the maximum out of the players they had. And as in, in terms of the offload, and Birch, which, which our coaches had, I'll ask you a question. Like, in terms of, of offloading, they say the key element here is you're winning the collisions, you're, up, you're getting your hands through, so therefore you have the opportunity to offload. But that also, in my view, changes the support lines that the players take. In other words, they're coming on your inside and your outside with a view to getting a pass, whereas, let's say, in the Joe Schmidt regime, the support player's first job, he knew we, we were more, we, we took, the, we took the, um, the tackle, we went to ground, and it was all about clean-out. It was all about your position in the, in the breakdown. So therefore, the supporting player was more focused on what his job was in cleaning out at the breakdown as opposed to staying on his feet to take an offload. And I just wonder, is there still an element with the Irish player in trying to play this heads-up rugby that they're, they're still more focused on their breakdown work as opposed to getting into support positions. 
Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And, that, and that was the reason that Joe was anti-offload because he didn't want that left support player or right support player to overrun it and lose the ball to breakdown. So, you know, his message was, look, unless it's 100% certain, carry, go to ground, recycle. And in fairness, the laws in, in 2017-18 were more favourable to that. That's started to change now with, with it being easier to get them breakdown turnovers in terms of side entry, in terms of, you know, the jackal lift, etc. Um, and like, I think as well, unfortunately for the players, if you look at the recent example against Wales, um, for Wales' first try, I mean, Gary Ringrose does win the collision uh, off a great scrum. He gets over the game line. <laughs> Robbie Henshaw isn't there to support. Johnny Sexton's in a half a yard of space. He calls for the offload and we don't execute and we can see the try. So... As, you, as players potentially will start to, when there's been a high profile error like that, which costs them, they go back into their shell again. And that's where the coaches need to, to reassure them and protect them and say, look at, you know, there's going to be errors in this. It's not a, um, it's a, it's a riskier uh, strategy than just going to recycle, but we have to be willing to, to accept that there will be times when it goes against us, but the overall benefits will be, will be a hard, will be a much harder team to, uh, defend, we'd score tries from deeper, we'd have to work, we'd save energy in terms of scoring because we can we can score after two or three phases which which France, you know, let's be honest they showed us that and and, um, and in fairness to Wales Wales were able to score off that transition from that turnover from, from Gary Ringrose where there's a mismatch, so that's the that's the key is to is to keep reassuring them and understanding that, you know, it's it's higher risk, but I don't, look, I think I think they'll throw it for the province uh, and there is some less space, but, uh, but also uh, on the other side of things, I think we're playing, okay, we unsettled halfbacks against, against France, but in general, we've picked, you know, pretty experienced bar Hugo Keenan's backline has been a backline that have been together in a, in an Irish squad for, for four or five years, at least, you know, so the, the idea that we're putting together new bodies all the time and trying to learn from each other isn't really, Relevant. Just on go back to Wesley's one around, you know, if you if you box kick away, you lose thirty five percent possession or whatever. Um, it is still lower risk because it's a contestable, so it's much harder to to for the, the team to come back at you on the front foot. That's the only reason that it's considered low risk. I mean, uh, anyone who box kicks knows they're not going to win it all back, but it does limit the opposition's chance of doing anything with it for those first five or six phases. If you've got a good D. You should be able to shut them down and make them kick back to you. That that's just the point on that. But uh, yeah, I, I think definitely. I think the biggest issue is that we haven't run at space, and that's been the biggest problem. And once you're running at space, you get your hands free, and then it's an opportunity to offload. But I, I see us being stuck between the fifteens a lot, and that's where teams defensively are are quite strong, and that's affecting the the tackle, which is affecting the the opportunity to offload as well. So my cat's job is to is to get the team into areas where they're running at, at mismatches, so i.e. backs against forwards, um, or they're running into, into space and we've got overlaps. And that's when the, the, the offloads should come. Playing between the two 15s and expecting offloads. I mean, you're going to be offloading going backwards uh, and it, it's, going to be, um, it's going to be, you know, car crash. I, I think, Wes, that the coaching ticket would get a lot more slack if we were able to recognise what it is that they're trying to do. And I'm saying this because I listened to Donald and to Bernard kind of scratching their heads saying, we're not quite sure what it is that they're trying to do here. I listened to Brian O'Driscoll, who's watched the team since Andy Farrell took over. He's not sure what they're trying to do. 
Shane Horgan, Owen Redden, the list goes on. And I think that's their, their biggest problem here. They can talk you know, talk up their attack and talk about the plan that they have all they like. If it's not immediately apparent to guys who are just recently out of the game, to coaches who study the game, and to fans as well, then you have to kind of ask yourself, you know, what, what is it that they're actually trying to do here? And if nobody can recognise it, I think that's their biggest problem. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's... it's Like, I, I get what Bernard's saying there, that, you know, would it, would it, you know, the reason it's deemed low risk is because it's contestable. Like, I get that any one kick is, is theoretically contestable. But what I'm saying is you, you know that over the course of 80 minutes, you're going to lose X amount of them. And there's kind of an abdication in giving away a possession, the same way as Bernard said earlier, there, there's a bit of a, that we've, we've narrowed even since last season. Like, that would seem to be kind of born of, of, of fear um, and an aversion to risk because you're under pressure or because you don't have confidence in, in executing. So, I mean... I don't know. Like, I mean, it, it's it's clarity again. I think is is what you've hit on. Like, no one knows where they're going, um, uh, and that's why it's so confusing that he came out and said they've been given the plan because it's 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 been clear to no one what that plan is. So unless he's literally two steps ahead of everyone analysing the Irish team in circulation, you'd have to doubt the validity of that comment. I think. Just in terms of the general championship, Donald, and uh, I guess discipline has been a, a big talking point because of the <clears throat> red cards that we've had. Uh, I know Nigel Owens was on BT Sport this week saying the players just need to get it through their heads that if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to be sent off. They need to understand this <clears throat> is the diktat. This is the way the game is going to be refereed from now on. And I, I, I got the feeling from Nigel Owens that he's quite surprised that the players haven't got the message yet. Yeah, well, he's not the only one. I mean, you know, as we said in the podcast last week, Sander Ferguson's effort against um, uh, against Wales was the exact same as as Peter's won the previous week. Uh, and you're seeing that there's zero tolerance in this, um, and nothing has changed. Uh, it was there was a Premiership game, Leicester against Wasps. I think three players were sent off last weekend. Um, so, like, the message doesn't seem to be getting through. But um, look, it's. <clears throat> It's had a big impact on the championship. Um, you know, the, all the focus in terms of, of uh, high tackles, there was massive focus on it prior to the, the, the World Cup in Japan. If you remember, there was an under-20 uh, World Cup in the months before that, and fellas were getting sent off right, left, and centre. I think it was Ryan Baird was sent off in one of those games as well. Yeah. Uh, and they lost narrowly, I think, to Australia. Um, but players adapted. I mean, it isn't that long ago that you'd all the hullabaloo about contestables in the air and hitting a player in the air. The famous Jared Payne won Ulster against Saracens in the European Cup. You don't see those happening anymore. Players have adapted. Now, if anything, and I think I mentioned this in terms of of some of the analysis that was done uh, in against the head after uh, the last game, and, and that's where the, the kicking game comes into focus because of those issues about contesting in the air. Uh, players now are reluctant. If they're not in a position to compete from the ball, they stand off, wait for the opposition player to come to the ground. So therefore, that supports Wes's theory about the, the percentage of times now that when you're kicking, you're not getting the ball back because you had to adapt 
So therefore, uh, what I'm saying, I suppose, is look, the game evolves. So therefore, you've got to change as the game evolves. Um, and Nigel Owens was saying the exact same thing in, in connection with the rock. You have to be bound either on a player from your own side or the opposition. That's not happening. If you're going and leading with your shoulder or your elbow, then you're asking for trouble. And we've seen the impact that has had on games. So from that point of view, it, it, it has skewed the championship in a way because Wales, like after the games against Ireland and Scotland, you just scratched your head and you wondered, how oh, in the name of God, um, are they up there with nine points the same as, as France? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it now looks as if uh, COVID might, like obviously we're recording, you know, there's going to be a, an announcement later today as to whether the Scotland game go, uh, and France goes ahead. Uh, it's incredible to think everybody was doing so well. And now up to nine of the players involved with, with France, if the game goes ahead on Saturday, they won't be part of that French side. Yeah. Uh, you, just, you just wonder, like, is it right that the game goes ahead in the weekend if France are short nine or ten players? Look at the impact that could have in the championship. On the flip side, I see Scotland as ever moaning that, oh, if the game was played the following week, their players in the Premiership may not be available. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I suppose it was always going to be a championship with a difference because of COVID, because of the fact that there were no fans. Uh, but listen, we've been going fantastically without any issues with players uh, in terms of, of, of picking up the virus. And then all of a sudden, like within two or three days, uh, the way this thing has impacted on the French squad has, has been incredible. Uh, not that if the game went ahead, given the squad that they have, to be very interesting to see uh, if they had to make eight or nine changes, what the outcome would be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like they ran England very close when they, they played almost the second string team back at the Autumn Nations Cup. Bernard Gregor Townsend must be down on his knees praying that the match does go ahead, I presume, because given the amount of players, frontline players that are out for France. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Uh, just looking at the French papers this morning, it seems, he, I, I saw a quote from Ivanez, he's pretty confident that it will go ahead. They've like effectively, if they have twenty-three players who have passed the COVID uh, tests and are, are and are are COVID-free, there's no. I don't see why the Six Nations Committee would would then change it. It's it's different for a countryside who have massive depth. You know, obviously in the Premiership or in the Pro 14, we've seen teams lose a couple of front rows, and obviously they can't play then. Whereas France actually have, I think they've got twenty-eight players in camp now who are all tested. The negative or positive, not negative this morning. Yeah. So I, I expect it to go ahead, and I, and I think it's a, it's a, look at they might lose the game, but again, it's going to be good for France long term because um, I think four of the guys brought in are, are are uncapped, so they're getting exposed to to what looks like a really good environment. Some of them are going to get to play against you know a, a top a, a top team like Scotland in a pressurized environment. So while it's difficult for them in terms of the championship this year, and it may cost them the championship. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be overly surprised if they still won the match. I, I think there's serious depth there at the moment. And even if they don't win the match, I mean, in terms of next year and the, the player pool, it's probably a forced, forced rotation that could end up being a positive. Yeah, absolutely. But it's amazing. Sorry, sorry, Hugh, on that very point, I mean, the bottom line is the, the LNR, the league, the league in France, they forced the issue last November in terms of player availability during that Autumn Nations Cup. Obviously, there was more international games in that pocket because you had the, the games that were postponed in the Six Nations from the previous season, plus the four Autumn Nations Cup games. 
but the impact of the decision from the French Federation in their players, I think they only were going to allow the players play, was it a, a max of three or four internationals or whatever. So as a consequence of that, France were forced to change their squad and everybody got exposure. And even though they lost to England, they were the real winners at the end of it. If by virtue of this COVID scenario, they now have to make nine changes. But if they were still to go out to win, look what that is doing for them in terms of their longer term development towards the World Cup. Whereas we're still here in Ireland arguing about bringing in a 20 or a 21 year old or a 22 year old and putting them on the bench to give them 20 minutes to play against Italy and Rome. I mean, yeah. Doesn't yeah. make sense. It's it's yeah, it's talking cheese really. Where that at the moment, I guess when you just hold it up, a mirror up to us. Uh, Wes, I know Johnny Sexton during the week said, "Look, I probably won't be around for the World Cup." He is thinking about retirement. He has a contract almost sorted, so we presume if he's not planning to be here for the World Cup, it'll be a one-year deal or maybe an eighteen-month deal or that. But I was actually surprised to hear him say that uh, because all the impression that I have got from Johnny Sexton is that he's going to play until. Uh, at such time that he's pushed out the door uh, so I actually was quite taken aback to hear him say look I don't think I'm going to be around for the World Cup what did you make of it? That was bizarre as, as well yeah um, like he was talking about emulating Tom Brady a couple of weeks ago yeah. um, and now he's saying he doesn't know if he'll be here in a year's time um, I thought his whole demeanour was very different than it usually was yesterday in terms of he was much less prickly I suppose than he, than he typically is Um probably indicative of something i'm not sure what but um curious timing uh, when, when it came out um i don't know maybe it's some some media master stroke from uh, from the rfu uh, some some strategy to get us all thinking something that we we don't realize we're thinking or something i don't know yeah but think about it but sorry when you think about it there you see it it's it's policy when you get you know players in their mid 30s generally tend to be only offered a one year contract right so if Johnny's contract is up in, in May, June 21, that brings him to May to, to June of 22. You still have 18 months almost to go to the World Cup in 2023. So either he's maybe he's pressing for a two-year contract now as opposed to one. Um, and maybe he was thinking, look, okay, I if I get to the end of next year, geez, there's another 18 months after that. So yeah, I don't see it as that surprising, to be honest with you, in the context of of being offered a one-year contract. And look, at some stage, he has to sit back and, and acknowledge the fact that he hasn't been able to play 80 minutes of rugby in, in the vast majority of the games that he's played in over the past number of years. I would also say that whole issue and that the the annoyance in relation to the, uh, the French doctors coming out last week and yeah. all the issue on the concussion again. Uh, you know, when he, when he was talking about aspects of the game that he'd be quite thrilled to get away from I imagine that's one of them I mean the focus that's been on his health and and well-being and in terms of of after I mean that has to have an impact on your family you know he mentions his mother and his wife and you can see exactly where he's coming from so um maybe you know the the fallout from all that thing about the French also just triggered something in him where he you know um like that the World Cup is still a long long way away Absolutely. And like, you know, he's done everything and a world player of the year, Bernard. And, and in the week, I guess, when Dan Carter announced officially that he has now fully retired, he did it at his home club in New Zealand, which I thought was great. 
uh, you know, I, I was just kind of thinking about Sexton as well and, and everything that he has done for Leinster and for Ireland. But for Dan Carter, just while I mentioned him as well, would he go down as one of the best tens you've ever seen? Is oh, ever ever played the game? Yeah, I think so. Um, just his coolness under pressure, um, his ability to improve the teams that he, he joined. And people would say, oh, you know, Crusaders were always a successful team. But he was actually, when you look back at it, he was part of, he was a young player there as they started to build that dynasty. He went to Racing, you know, he won them at a top 14. Uh, he went to Japan, uh, helped Centauri, or not Centauri, um, Kobe Steel win a, a top 40, or a Japanese league. He just, and just speaking to some of the lads who played with him in Racing, just his, his, his calmness and his coolness under pressure um, and his ability to react and, and, and play the game, depending, uh, change, change the strategy depending on what the opposition were doing. Or the Heads fight. up rugby, Birch. Heads up rugby. Heads up rugby, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it, his, his performance against the Lions um, in New Zealand, I thought, uh, you know, he, he was just absolutely dominant. So, yeah, gifted player and, you know, the longevity he had, the impact he had on, uh, on every team he was in um, is phenomenal. Yeah, he's no yeah, Ralph Keyes, Donald. That, he's no Ralph Keyes, Donald, but he had his friends, didn't he? <laughs> Uh, well, look, I tell you what, the game that, that Birch is talking about, second test against the Lions, 2005. Unbelievable performance. I think he got over 30 points. Uh, and he was a young player. Think about that. That was 2005. Yeah. He was still the core element of the New Zealand team that won the World Cup in 2015. Remember the final against Australia? There was a, a, a stage in the game and Australia threatened to come back. And almost the recognition of what happened in 2007 when they were beaten by France. And they didn't drop a goal or they couldn't drop a goal. Or uh, if you remember at a vital point in that game, he got the drop goal and there was a smile on his face coming back. And it was almost as if it was a kind of a nod to the lads of 2007. Well, look, we learned some lessons over the years. Uh, but that game, uh, if you go back to that 2009 Lions tour, he was a very young player. He's just breaking into the scene. Uh, the Lions had once, well, Johnny Wilkinson, all the focus had been him on him, if you like. Uh, and at one stage, certainly in the first test, the Lions, they played a 10-12 axis. Stephen Jones at 10, Johnny Wilkinson at 12. Um, but Carter just blew the Lions away. And also, you're talking about weather. That, that, that test series, certainly the second <laughs> test, was played in horrific conditions. Yeah. Yes, he had the majesty. He had the variety in his game. He had the little chip kicks over the top. Uh, he was just a phenomenal player. Um, you know, I've, 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 I've often spoken to Raj about him. I met him once, Munster were playing Racing. It was the semi-final of the um, uh, the Heineken Cup about a number of years ago. Do you remember they lost in Bordeaux? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I just happened to be staying in the same hotel. I was walking in, there was a bunch of Munster. I, I got off the bus early, a bunch of Munster supporters. I came into the hotel and, geez, I could see two or three of the Racing players for Carter was standing at reception. So, and he kind of nodded. No, I, I, he didn't know who I was, but I actually told him look, that I'd been a good friend of Graham Henry's and we got chatting. And he was an absolutely smashing fella. Yeah. And I, was saying, and I remember saying, look, Jesus, there's a bunch of about 50 monstrous supporters are going to come through the door here <laughs> in a minute. Oh, he says, but I just thought, geez, he says, you talk the exact same way as Raj. Jeez. Well, I said... So obviously the Cork accent made a made a big impact on him, but uh, I mean, like, uh, a like, smashing player. Yeah, he was. I mean, was like last word to you on his like one of the geniuses of of Lionel Messi. People say is that he just seems to have more time with the ball than anybody else. That's the way I always saw Dan Carter. 
at 10, I, albeit he was behind a very good all-backs pack most of the time, but he did seem to have that extra second uh, decision-making time. But that's just the player that he was. It was so natural to him. Before we get to that, I think we should discuss the hotel budget the Irish Examiner are spending on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were the good days. That's a great. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I look, I didn't see uh, Phil Bennett or Barry John, obviously, uh, live, um, but definitely in my lifetime, I would say just about past Johnny Wilkinson as, as the best there's been. I remember seeing him playing a November international against France. I think they played it in Marseille in 2008, um, and his performance was every bit as good as it was in the Lions game. And against the poor French side in the 2015 World Cup quarterfinal, he was phenomenal as well. Um, and I think I'd agree with Donald that kind of not just dropping that goal against Australia, but dropping it off his left foot um, kind of brought everything full circle and maybe the final criticism of of, of some New Zealand teams and, and employed at him, even though he wasn't involved in, in that game in 07 after going off injured, I think kind of sealed the deal for me as, as the best that's played the game in that jersey. Yeah, totally agree with you. Okay, lads, I'm not going to ask you a prediction. I, I presume we all think that uh, Ireland are going to win this weekend. Hopefully we do. We get our first Six Nations win and we look back on it next week. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks so much.